Farmers are the heartbeat of rural America. Congress recently invested $20 billion in America's farmers and ranchers, focusing on conservation practices and profits for future generations. Today, these funds are at risk. You're squawking over $20 billion, that USDA program. It's investment into the future for everybody. If the funding was eliminated, it could hurt farms and families. Tell Congress, protect this generational investment in the Farm Bill. Learn more at investinourland.org. Paid for by Invest in Our Land. Today's episode is sponsored by AARP. Will Arizona swing blue this election cycle? And what is the role of Hispanic voters over 50? The latest issue of Politico Magazine's new series, The Deciders, takes a deep dive in Maricopa County, Arizona, to understand the power of this unique voting block. Visit politico.com slash the deciders to learn more. Hello, listeners. Welcome to another episode of Politico's Nerdcast. I'm Scott Bland, your host. This week on the Nerdcast, President Trump will bail out U.S. farmers who are on the sharp end of his escalating trade fights. But the move has some Republican lawmakers seeing red, as in Soviet red. We will explain all that and more as uh, Trump's actions over the last couple weeks continue to anger a set of Republican senators. The big question being, what will they do about it? Plus, Trump has more fighting words for the media, and we're going to talk to our media reporter about whether the dynamic between the press and the president is shifting and how this all relates into uh, President Trump's broader uh, political strategy for the midterms, for 2020, uh, for how the White House wants to accomplish policy things, the whole smash. A reminder to our listeners before we get started with that to subscribe to the Nerdcast, rate us, and write a review. And remember to stay tuned for the end of the show for a contribution from one of the Nerdcast's biggest fans. Okay, let's get started. I want to welcome our guest. We have senior politics editor Charlie Matessian in the studio. Charlie, good to see you as always. Hey, Scott. And uh, we've got uh, on the line, we've got two of our intrepid congressional reporters. We've got uh, Alana Shore on Skype from the Capitol. Hi, Alana. Hi there. And uh, Burgess Everett, also on the Hill, is on the phone. Hi, Burgess. Hey, Scott. Thank you so much to both of you for joining us. Time for our first data point, 12 billion I think that's one of our largest data points yet. That's $12 billion the Trump administration has pledged in farm subsidies to offset the impact of his trade spats with China and U.S. allies. Uh, but, you know, this we, this is really important. We've talked a lot in, in recent weeks about the impact that uh, these uh, trade issues have been having on Trump country, on farmers in particular. Uh, on the flip side, Trump's other big constituency, Republicans on Capitol Hill, uh, are are kind of freaking out about this. And, and we've seen a lot of uh, big reactions from pro-free trade uh, Republicans in the last few days. Right, Burgess? Yeah. And, and you know, there's you know, nearly a dozen, I would say, Republican senators who are just super gung-ho about this. Um, and, and they're really just looking for any opportunity to at least sort of let Congress take back some of its authority on trade issues, which have sort of been ceded for the White House. And so, you know, we we got this fantastic quote out of Ron Johnson um, from Wisconsin earlier this week about how $12 billion subsidies are evidence of a, a quote, Soviet-style economy. And what he's meaning by that is you're imposing taxes on farmers and others, 
through these tariffs and the people that buy goods. And then what you're doing is paying them off so that they can wait until Trump is able to reach trade deals with our allies and some of our adversaries like China. Um, so this is this market distortion is the kind of thing that Republicans would have killed President Obama for. And some of them are being very critical of President Trump as well. And uh, what what are what are we hearing from uh, ag groups uh, and and you know the the farmers who are actually affected uh, on this in addition to the senators who represent a lot of them? Basically, what you're hearing is this aid is a positive because people are starting to hear the feel the pinch from soybeans is probably the most common thing you'll hear about. Soybean prices have been dropping, and so this is something this this aid package is something that's going to help farmers um, weather this. But the, the counterpoint you'll hear is we don't want welfare. We just want to sell our products and work our farms and have a good you know, year and export our goods to other countries that use them. So it's definitely sort of a, a temporary band-aid for the problems that the tariffs have created for these farmers. And it's potentially doesn't necessarily cover the full extent of the problem that has been created, right? I think I've, I've seen some of the reporting around this. There are, you know, it's obviously difficult to measure a lot of this in real time, but there's some right. suggestion that, uh, you know, in terms of the economic pain that's already been suffered because of this, it exceeds the $12 billion that uh, that is being earmarked here. And this is coming through the Department of Agriculture, right? This is not coming through Congress. So Congress can, can kick and scream about it, but Right. Uh, there's there's nothing they can do about it and in the wouldn't, meantime. They wouldn't try to stop the payment because that would be absolutely terrible politics, but that doesn't mean they're not going to sort of criticize it. And you mentioned that there's a larger extent, maybe than $12 billion on ag. That doesn't even bring in the manufacturing industries that are getting hit by the tariffs, uh, the retaliatory tariffs on the United States right now. That's a great point. Charlie, can you can you walk us through some of the political implications here? Again, I know we've talked about this a few times in recent weeks, but if you look at the places that are, are being most heavily affected by uh, the tariffs, especially on the agricultural side, you kind of you start to, to outline a really uh, sensitive map of, of you know, uh, places throughout Iowa and elsewhere in the Midwest that uh, maybe voted for Obama once or twice and then flipped to, to, to Trump in 2016. Key battleground areas currently represented by endangered Republicans in Congress. Yeah, soybeans is a, is a great way to look at it, too. I mean, we, we talk about the $12 billion in subsidies, but there's a great story um, on our site today from Natasha Korecki, who's out in Iowa, uh, who was talking to farmers about this. And, you know, w- what she discovered is that there's some 40,000 soybean farmers in Iowa alone. So ultimately, there's not that much money going to these farmers uh, in, in subsidies. And certainly, in many cases, not going to be enough to uh, mitigate all the damage that's done now, but also down the pike in the future. And look at the president's map today. Both the president and Mike Pence have done uh, a great bit of damage control, whether they admit it or not, in the Midwest since this, since the trade war started. Uh, Pence did a little Midwestern tour a week ago, or maybe it was two weeks ago, doing some fundraisers and doing some events. And now Trump is essentially following the same track through Iowa and through Illinois. And if you take a look at the Iowa map, and uh, you've got a couple of uh, battleground competitive seats there, same is true in, in Illinois. Add them all up. There are six battleground House districts in Illinois and Iowa. And that is a quarter of the way to winning back the House for Democratic Party. So there, these these kinds of seats are essential. And that's why the president is today going to Rod Blum's district in northeastern Iowa. And that's why he's in Dubuque and why he'll go after that down to southern Illinois to Mike Boss district. Very similar uh, dynamics at play. 
So, Alana, you've been doing some reporting on uh, another issue that's really been animating Senate Republicans in a way that we don't often see kind of against President Trump in uh, recent weeks. You know, this week it's uh, agriculture and these these payments that free trade senators are, are talking about as kind of manipulating the economy. Last week it was Russia. And while it doesn't seem, at least not yet, like there's a lot of movement uh, from senators to kind of wrest back uh, trade authority to... to you know, maybe undo or, or mitigate some of these tariffs. There is some movement uh, that, that you've reported on uh, on uh, potential action on Russia. Can you tell us a little bit about that and and kind of how uh, how it relates to to you know this this bubbling sentiment within the Republican conference about the Trump administration right now? Yes. Well, I think we're at a bit of a tipping point right now on Russia sanctions, where if there were a bill. Uh, that there was a reasonable amount of consensus on in terms of, okay, these are new sanctions we can slap on Putin that won't hurt our allies, it might pass the Senate by an overwhelming margin, just like the sanctions bill passed last year. The problem right now is, number one, that bill doesn't exist yet. There are a couple of bipartisan options circulating, but none has necessarily picked up enough steam yet to be able to say that Mitch McConnell is under any real pressure to give it floor time. Because also remember, we're quite close to the election, and Mitch McConnell is no fan of Russia. He was no fan of that presidential press conference last week. But he's also not necessarily inclined to give Democrats a bipartisan win before the election by calling up a sanctions vote. So we've got this interesting tension now with a lot of appetite to do something, but not a lot of political reason for that something to happen. How much of that appetite to do something is tied up in, uh, you know, not only wanting to to kind of punish uh, Russia for uh, any number of of actions around the world, but to kind of send a little bit of a message to to the president? Is that playing into this at all after after having uh, seen that press conference? I guess a week and a half ago at this point. I mean, potentially, but define message. You know, Senate Republicans right. <laughs> also don't want to cause headlines. You know, we're slapping at the president. The most telling quote I got on this this week was actually from Bob Menendez, the chief Democrat on the Foreign Relations Committee and no ally of the GOP. I said, like, are, are you really believing you can get Republicans on this, this close to the election? Truly, Senator. And he said, you know, this isn't about hitting the president. It's about hitting Putin. And I think that's a canny decision from a liberal to talk about it that way, because that's the way he gets Republicans on board, not by making this about going to war with Trump. That's that's a really interesting point, Bur- Burgess. I mean that that kind of that kind of fits into what we were talking with about about trade, right? It's the, uh, the, the it it seems to me like Republican Senate they, they don't want to make this about fighting Trump. They want to make it about the policy, and and they're kind of looking for excuses to almost to to not make it about Trump. Well, it depends on which Republican senator you're talking about. Tell us more. Uh, <laughs> if you if you're if you're talking to Bob Corker or Jeff Flake. They, they might be doing this to that is sort a, of get back at the president. That is a great point. That if is a great point. If you're talking to Ron Johnson or Johnny Isaacson, they just simply don't like the policy. Um, and so... I.e. the senators who are retiring versus the ones who are going to be around for a while. Right. And then you could sprinkle in, you know, a Ben Sass who's not retiring uh, this cycle, at least. Uh, and, and he's been very critical of the president on tariffs, too. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I would say that it's... There is a faction of the Republican Party that thinks the president's out of control on the tariffs. There's another faction of the Republican Party who just doesn't like the policy and is very worried about the party drifting away from free trade. They've sort of united to form this bloc that wants to sort of tie the president's hands on tariffs. 
then yet there's another faction of Republicans say, I think Joni Ernst of Iowa is one of the better examples, or you might look at someone like John Boone, who's in the leadership from South Dakota. These are people who really don't want to take on the president, and they are sort of, if if something was going to happen in the Senate on trade, these would be the folks who would have to vote for it to put it over the 60-vote threshold. And so when you have the president um, sort of announce an agreement to make an agreement with the EU on soybeans yesterday, people like Joni Ernst were very excited about it. And so if, if the president's able to hold people like that away from legislation that might tie his hands, I don't think you'd see any action in the Senate because of that point that you just brought up. Most Republicans do not want these headlines about them taking on President Trump. Alana, I want to give you the last word here. What what should we look out for? You know, you, you gave us kind of these, these guideposts about the, the, you know, some of the decisions and obstacles to to potential action on Russia sanctions what what are what's what's next up in terms of what you're watching for and kind of timeline for potential action obviously like you mentioned with the election kind of looming in everyone's uh, in everyone's view yeah I have to believe that it'll take one more, you know, straw on the proverbial camel's back to really force something to happen. And that might be a date for the Trump-Putin summit next year. That might be an actual sanctions-related policy move that the administration will announce. But if the administration can manage to say nothing, like stay totally quiet about coziness towards Moscow between now and the election, it's pretty possible this just fades. Uh, however, the chances of that are, are kind of low, given their past records. So it'll be interesting to see what happens. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and again, I just think that this this relates into this kind of pattern relates back into everything we see with the Trump administration and Senate Republicans and House Republicans. It's that something happens and there's kind of this burst of outrage and uh, this kind of burst of p- p- momentum or potential momentum towards something. And then it fades and people get distracted a little bit by something else that, that goes on. And there's, you know, there's the election coming up and there's this and there's that. And then it, it you know, sometimes ha- sometimes something happens, sometimes something doesn't. And then, you know, two months later, something else <laughs> happens again. Like you said, the, 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 the White House is not a particularly controlled uh, entity. And, and then it, the cycle starts over again. So... Yeah, it's certainly the follow the bouncing ball, the shiny thing uh, presidency. So we will see if Russia is that shiny thing for too much longer. All right. Well, uh, we'll leave it there. Uh, Charlie, I know you're going to stay put for segment two, uh, but we're going to say goodbye for now to uh, Burgess Everett. Burgess, thank you so much. Thanks, Scott. And Alana joining us on Skype. Thank you. Thank you. We are going to jump right into our next segment, but first we're going to take a quick break for a word from a sponsor. Today's episode is sponsored by AARP. Democrats have been expecting Barry Goldwater's home state of Arizona to flip blue for years, yet it remains red. Will 2018 be the election cycle that tips the scales? The latest issue of Politico Magazine's new series, The Deciders, takes a deep dive into Maricopa County, Arizona, to understand the power of Hispanic voters over 50. With two crucial Arizona races in play, will it be voter turnout in this group or identity politics that decides the day? Visit politico.com slash the deciders to learn more. All right, we are going to move on to our next data point, which is three quarters. Three quarters of Republicans trust Trump over the media to tell the truth about important issues. That's including 
according to a new poll from Quinnipiac University out this week. And we're going to talk a little bit about the tension between the media and the White House uh, in our in our next segment. Uh, not not so much from from our perspective as uh, journalists, because I feel like probably everyone listening to this has to deal with difficult people at their at their work. But in terms of how this plays into uh, the Trump administration's broader plans and goals. Uh, so here in the studio to talk about it, we have White House correspondent Nancy Cook. Hi, Nancy. Hey, thanks for having me. And joining us for his Nerdcast debut, we have Jason Schwartz, who is Politico's media reporter. Hi, Jason. Hey, thanks for having me on. Jason, you had a really interesting story uh, today about how the Pentagon uh, has become uh, kind of behind the scenes a little bit, a, a another battleground in uh, this kind of long simmering conflict between the Trump administration and the media. Can you tell us a little bit about uh, your most recent reporting? Yeah, it, it's pretty fascinating. The, the very short version is that reporters in the Pentagon press corps are increasingly feeling like they're not getting enough information to inform the public about what the American military is doing. Uh, which is which is sort of a remarkable thing when you think about it. Uh, Secretary of Defense Mattis has not briefed uh, on camera since April. His top spokesman hasn't done so since May. Reporters find that you know officials who used to talk to them all the time all of a sudden you know are zipped up, and you know it's it's just less information flow making their way. Fewer reporters even going to the Pentagon. It's just not worth their time anymore. They say. Is this in response to anything in particular, or is this kind of happening? Uh, you know, it, it, it's gotten worse over the last few months, but I think the short ver- version is it's in response to Trump. Uh, you know, the Secretary Mattis has worked pretty hard to keep a low profile, keep out of the spotlight, not be on cable TV is really the big one. And the other part of that is that, you know, they might not always know what the White House is going to do over in the Pentagon, so they're afraid to say anything that's going to get them crossed up. That's a really good point. We've seen that a number of times, right, Nancy? Yeah, we have. Like, just one example that I, I always come back to is the transgender ban, which the president announced over Twitter against the wishes of Mattis and a bunch of military officials um, and against the wishes of his lawyers. You know, they kept telling him to slow walk it, they need to study it, and he just got tired of it, so he announced it. And so I do feel like, you know, Mattis is in a bit of a precarious position. He's aligned himself with General Kelly, who's a bit marginalized these days. And so it makes sense to me that he's laying low. I do think by like restricting press access so much, you know, you cause a reaction in and of itself and, and that draws more attention to it. But um, but just one more thing on that, you know, this just fits into a much broader pattern that we've seen uh, in the last year of just decreasing transparency from the White House. So, you know, they don't release the visitor logs to the White House. That's been a really big blow to seeing who goes in and out. This week, they stopped releasing readouts of calls that the president has with foreign leaders. Now, like those readouts are never particularly detailed, but they do at least alert the press that he has called the president of Turkey or, you know, Macron in France. And now we sort of have no sense of that. And then they also lately, just because they've been under such fire for a bunch of different things like Michael Cohen stuff, uh, you know, the separating migrants and families, they've really decreased the number of briefings that they've had. And this is all against the backdrop, uh, Charlie, of Trump telling uh, uh, folks at a, at a speech in Kansas City, uh, j- quote, just remember what you're seeing and what you're reading is not what's happening, which is an amazing incredible blanket statement to to make about uh the 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 reporting on on what's what's going on in his administration and what the policies that his administration uh has enacted are doing 
Right, but it's, but that's no surprise, you know. I mean, the 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 media bashing is just catnip for him, and it's it can, it's no surprise, but it's crazy. Well, yeah, but I mean, he's been doing it since the beginning, and it's uh, it has produced tremendous dividends to him. I mean, it's a it's a stock part of every rally, it's every appearance he makes. Um, it's part of his brand, and I mean, it's it's political gold for him. I mean, he spins political gold every time he hits the media. There is no constituency that vote. I mean, nobody wins votes by uh, embracing the media. Nobody, not at all. But you can win a lot of votes by beating the heck out of the media, and he has realized that, and he's tapped into uh, a lot of animosity toward the media, and he will continue to do it, and it will be a huge theme in his re-election campaign as well. It's not just even the media, though. I feel like by him saying, you know, don't believe what you're hearing or seeing is also a knock against, you know, the intelligence community that is saying there's inter- there was Russian interference in the election, which he has sort of disagreed with. Like, it's just sort of undermining the media, intelligence community, agencies, like anyone who sort of publicly disagrees with him. And I think it's really laying the groundwork so that when much more serious political things happen, like the results of the Mueller investigation, for instance, you know, he is in a position to have so undermined those institutions, including the media, that, you know, a bunch of people, including his base, won't believe whatever comes out. You know, I, I was also struck listening to interviews with farmers, other people who had been hurt by the trade tariffs, saying, you know, these people who had supported Trump in the first place saying, yeah, you know, I've lost some money, I'm in a hard shape, but I trust them, you know, I think this is going to work out. And it sort of gets at the same thing, like, trust me, I'm the one who's going to take care of this for you. Don't believe all this other stuff. So it goes deeper than the media in some ways, it feels like. So, Jason, how how are you, as, as you report on the media in, in Washington and elsewhere, what, what are... What are you seeing happening in response to this? I think we're seeing some behavior, uh, behavioral changes in the way the, the, the media reacts to the, the barriers that the White House and others are erecting uh, in their way, uh, not, not just in terms of, you know, the, the relentless news cycle, I mean, and, and the, the kind of relentless reporting on it, but it, like some tactical uh, things and like very, very kind of nitty gritty things and just in terms of trying to find out information. Yeah, it does seem like journalists are sort of banding together a little bit. I think it got a lot of attention. It was either last week or the week before. It's time is sort of a blender now. I don't even know. <laughs> uh, where, where Jordan Fabian from The Hill in a press briefing at the White House when Hallie Jackson was trying to finish a question and Sarah Sanders was cutting her off, Jordan sent it back to her, basically said, you know, finish this question. That was something a lot of people noticed as sort of a sign of like, okay, you know, the White House press corps is in this together. Whether that's like a one-time thing, or going to be more of a trend, we'll see. But certainly you saw a lot after uh, Caitlin Collins from CNN, after she was not allowed into the event at the Rose Garden yesterday, you saw a lot of reporters speaking out in support of her, Fox News reporters as well. So it does seem like, at least for now, Nancy can probably speak to this better than I can, that there's some sense of pull together. Charlie, when you talk about the the political upside for, for Trump of doing this, do you, do you mean upside in terms of broader appeal, or are you just talking about Trump's seemingly constant efforts to make sure that that core of his base, however much it is, stays tight? I think it's about animating the base, but it's also a no-lose situation. You don't lose any voters, or at least Trump is not going to lose any voters, and he's not going to lose any Republican voters from bashing the media. I mean, Republicans have long uh, had an issue with uh, what they believe is a 
profound and enduring media bias. And so that has really been something that has gotten under their skin for, for many, many years, long before Donald Trump. But I think Trump has really concentrated that animus and it really drives his base. I mean, that's what, you know, that, that's what struck me the, as soon as the first time I got out on the trail and started uh, in 2016 and attended a couple of Trump events is how animated folks got when he talked about the media, when he bashed them and, and how angry they got. And, and I think he, he knows it's political gold for him. That's why he talks about it so much and why it's integral to his to his political brand. I mean, uh, Nancy, another person who knows the political value of this sort of thing is the new White House communications director, right, who is in his previous role at Fox News helped foment <laughs> the um, the uh, distrust of a lot of other uh, media by uh, um, among conservatives leading up to this point. Can you tell us a little bit about Bill Shine yeah. and what he's been up to in his first weeks at the White House? Yeah, and I also think it's important to note that he was um, in a number of lawsuits named as someone who was very integral at Fox News of covering up um, all of the sexual harassment of Roger Ailes, and, and that is part of why he left Fox News. And so anyway, now he takes up this job in the White House. You know, he's very close to Sean Hannity, who is very close to President Trump. Um, and he's taken on this. He's the deputy chief of staff for communications. I haven't interacted with him personally myself. I did think it was interesting that, you know, one of his first public moves was to bar a young female reporter from attending a public White House event. I feel like given his sort of baggage at Fox um, covering up sexual harassment things, I think that uh, you know, that reeks a little bit of a misogyny to me to borrow a, a young female reporter or just sort of a bullying move. Um, but that's always something that, you know, White House communications directors do. But I do think that he has accumulated power pretty quickly. And I think that he's someone to watch in the White House. There was a really interesting tidbit in a Gabe Sherman piece for Vanity Fair, um, which I haven't I haven't sort of asked anyone about yet. I haven't had time. But apparently Bill Shine is also in addition to overseeing communications, overseeing personnel at the White House, which will be a huge portfolio because so many people have left. They have to do a lot of hiring. And so I think it will be really interesting to see sort of how he plays, you know, as a former big television producer, sort of how he plays to the president's instincts on that. And also just um, sort of how his role continues to grow because he is reporting directly to the president and sort of how that relationship continues uh, will be something important to watch through the rest of the year. And I think uh, every once in a while, it's worth to sort of pull back and just sort of think about, to Nancy's point, Bill Shine, based on the way he left Fox News, the circumstances he left under, is a guy who probably couldn't get a job at almost any big company in this country. He just couldn't get hired um, because of his HR record, and he's in the White House now. So, you know, and to bring it full circle, the the reason they're able to do that is because when the media writes about this and when, you know, there have been lots of columns about this, people jumping up and down screaming about it, uh, the president's supporters, they go, eh, you know, it's the media. So it it really sort of comes around that way. I'm curious to see what, if any, uh, effect that he seems to have on on this seemingly (laughs) somehow worsening relations between uh, between the White House and the press and uh, how, how that continues to, to play into you know, President Trump's political strategies. Um, Jason, thank you so much for joining us. That was excellent. No, thanks. Thanks for having me. Was it as exciting as you thought? I was a little worried I was going to get like stuffed in a locker, <laughs> maybe some swirlies, but I, I think I came out okay. The studio is a little bigger than a locker, <laughs> but not, not too much. We're very, very happy you could join us today. Nancy, great to see you as always. Oh, thanks for having me. And Charlie, thank you. Thank you, Scott.
All right, as promised, before we head out this week, we are going to turn things over briefly to one Nerdcast superfan. Stephen Fay of Sydney, Australia, is going to help us out with the credits this week. Nerdcast is produced by Michaela Rodriguez with help from Adrian Hurst. Dave Shaw is the executive producer and the illustrator is Bill Cookman. If you like Nerdcast and are listening to Apple Podcasts, rate the show and leave a review. It helps new listeners find the show. Thank you, Stephen. Listeners, we found Stephen because he emailed to say he was a fan of the Nerdcast. If you are a fan of the podcast who wants to read the credits, let us know. Shoot an email to nerdcast at politico.com. One last note before we go. Our colleague Dan Diamond talked this week with Sylvia Matthews Burwell, the former Health and Human Services Secretary under the Obama administration. It's a great conversation that touches on the border crisis, the Trump administration's efforts to tear down the Affordable Care Act, and a lot more. So please check it out. One of our sister podcasts, it's the Politico Pulse Check podcast. Go ahead and search for it right now. You won't regret it. Thank you so much again for listening this week. We will talk to you again next week.